So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Mark chapter 6. Last week we were in chapter 6, uh, and I did <clears throat> the feeding of the 5,000. And today I'm walk- doing Walking on the Water. Those two, we finished reading last week with uh, feeding of the 5,000. We started this week with uh, Walking on the Water. And so I took those two sermons and just put them together because I believe these two texts are to be kind of studied together. They, as you look at the very end, if you have your Bible, we're going to pray and read in just a second, but if you have your Bible in Mark chapter 6, if you look at verse 52, right at the end of Jesus walking on the water, it says, for they did not understand about the loaves. So the writer, all of them say this, is wanting us to point over to the feeding of the 5,000 and how we understand the walking on the water points us over to understand how we understand the feeding of the 5,000 helps us understand the, the water. So we're going to come back to all that um, But today, uh, we're going to be at Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 45, Jesus walking on the water. Likely, you've heard this plenty of times before, um, and maybe you've just read it or just heard about it. Um, I was was going to sing a Charlie Daniels song where Jesus walks on the water, and I know it's true, but my wife encouraged me not to, so I won't. Um, So we're going to pray, and now I definitely need to. I'm referring to Charlie Daniels, although he's a Christian now. Let's pray, and then we will jump into Mark chapter 6. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for being so patient with me and all of us um, in our sometimes quirkiness or weirdness and weird personalities. But more than that, Lord, thank you for being so patient with us as we should seek after you so often and we don't. I pray for today that your word would do what it's promised to do. We know that your word's sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts through the vision of marrow. We know that it trains us in righteousness. We know that it convicts. And when the spirit is coupled with your word, it does amazing work. And so, Lord, I pray that that would happen. I know that it's not dependent upon me or any kind of winsomeness or effectiveness in speech for a sermon to be effective. Um, I know it's helpful, but not dependent. And so... I'm trusting the Spirit and your Word to do its work in our hearts. Not just everyone that listens, but myself, that I'm listening, and that I need it as well. So Lord, I pray that my speech, my language, my thoughts, the words I say, adorn your Word, adorn your Gospel, adorn what the Spirit wants to do, and would be helpful and useful. And I I confess my absolute dependence that you would come now, and you would do those things. I pray for both believers and those that might not know you now that you would draw all of us to a deeper walk with you and do the work that only the Spirit can do. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of the sermon is Trust Jesus. You can, you can see it's pretty, pretty simple, Trust Jesus. And while that's like, okay, Trust Jesus, that seems pretty simplistic. Um, I want to explain what I mean by Trust Jesus because it's, I think, a little bit more uh, difficult to wrap our heads and minds around. So I want to... Uh, I want to tell you what I mean when I say trust Jesus. So I don't just mean for those that aren't Christians or for those that weren't at one point Christians and now trust in Jesus. You're a sinner and you need to be saved. So Jesus died on the cross for your sins. So trust in Jesus and confess your sin and ask him to come into your heart and be saved. I don't just mean trust in Jesus. I mean something kind of deeper. For those of you that are believers, I mean trust Jesus. As you're walking every day, as you have maybe inordinate strengths and giftings and you can accomplish many things on your own power, I'm saying don't try to do everything in your own strength or don't try to do anything on your own strength, but trust Jesus. Trust him as you're walking through both difficult and easy times. Trust Jesus that he is who he says he is. He can do what he's going to promise. I know that especially in America when we have... Um, things at our our fingertips that maybe most don't, Um, giftings, uh, opportunities for education. It's so easy for us to just operate on our own power, operate on our own giftings, operate on our own strength. And I'm saying, don't just trust in Jesus as your Savior, but trusting. Don't try to do things on your own strength. Trust Him. That's what I mean when I say trust Jesus today. So not just trusting in initial salvation, but ongoing trust in all of your life. So we're going to be looking at this text. I'm going to read it in its entirety. I usually don't make it all the way through. I'm going to try um, to just read it and, because the word's the word, not my words. So um, let's, let's do that. And then at the, after we get through, we'll come back. And uh, we'll, there's four things I want you to see about trusting Jesus in the text. Immediately... 
See, I already got to stop. All right, so <laughs> I knew I was going to admit. So here's the deal. If you weren't here last week, here's what's going on. I'm sorry. I'm such a mess. But last week, when Jesus fed the 5,000, uh, he's, he's going to put the disciples in a boat, and he gets in the boat, and they're crossing over, and they're going to go get some rest, and the people know that they're going to the other side, so they literally run like 10 miles all the way around to the top end of the, of the lake. They're waiting on him, like, come on, come on ashore. Um, and so that where they don't get the rest, they don't. So Jesus preaches immediately. The first thing he does is teach them. He doesn't do anything. It says it uh, right there uh, in the end of verse 34. They were like sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion on them. What does he do? He teaches. He realized that the primary need of anything is the word of the gospel. They need the teaching. They need to know God more than anything. So that's what he does. It helps them know God. He, the day's going on to the end, so it's getting very much towards the end of the day. The disciples are like, we need to send them out to the Hebrew hut. It's time for them to go get their own food. They're like, no, you feed them. So he, he, he breaks. Andrew gets some food from a little kid. He breaks the bread and fish. He feeds probably close to 15,000 people um, at that day. The day's coming really close to an end. And so the people in this particular context are, are like, whoa, Jesus feeds everybody. Um, it's not like today where food's everywhere for us now. They had to really work for their food. There were marketplaces, but food was difficult continually to find and get. And so they're thinking to themselves, this guy creates food. Of of the list of things that are difficult in my life, I mean, one of them is finding food continually. This guy creates food. So let's make him king. Knock that off our list. I can worry about these other things. Jesus be king. Jesus be king. We want you to usher and you be king. And Jesus like, no, 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 no. I am a king, but on the way to the throne, there's a cross I must go through. It's not time for me to be king now. And so because of that, he starts sending people away. Very close of the day, sending his disciples away. He wants to get off and pray. And so that's where we are. People are trying to make him king. He doesn't want to be king. And we see here immediately, and if you count out the number of times immediately, as in Mark, you'll have a lot. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go to the other side to Bethsaida. And he dismissed the crowd. I don't, it's not time to be king. Gets them all out. Very end of the day. Very end. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and Jesus was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Uh, so the, the picture is disciples struggling to, to get across the, the, the water. Jesus up on the water kind of watching them, praying. Look at them. Like it's, that's kind of the, and he says, <clears throat> And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And it came about the fourth watch of the night. Look down. That means between 3 a.m. And, and 6 a.m. Very end of the day. Very, I mean, late. Whenever we all want to be sleeping, they're out rowing. Um, <laughs> and it's not going well. And he came to them, so they're out in the fourth night, and Jesus came to them walking on the sea. This is where we've all heard walking on the water of Jesus. And he meant to pass them by, weird phrase, we'll come back to that, and he meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, um, for they saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. So because they didn't comprehend the miracle of the loaves, they don't comprehend the miracle of walking on the water. And it says, but their hearts were hardened. So before we jump in, let me just um, answer one thing to those that might be new to church, new to this story, skeptical of men walking on water. Um, there's been some... some People that aren't believers that try to take this and they say, okay, here's what really happened. It's like Key West, you know, you can just walk forever and it looks like you're walking on the water. Uh, Or I've heard people, I've read people say um, where actually Jesus is just kind of walking on the shore, but it's like some kind of optical illusion. They were Mr. No Depth Perception, like Tom Hanks back in SNL, and they just couldn't see that he's literally walking on water. They just thought, and so that's really what was going on is he's just walking on the shore. Both of those things aren't true. That is nowhere near what the writers are wanting us to think. The writers of these, of these books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, are wanting us to think, absolutely, this man's walking on the water. They were about three, John chapter 6, I think it's verse 18-ish, don't mark me on that, says something like, the disciples were about three or four miles out in the water. And so, uh, water doesn't stay shallow for three to four miles. Jesus walks on the water 
for three to four miles out to them when he gets there. That's pretty long, but you know, maybe Jesus was like a sprinter and he can get to them fast. I don't know how long it took, but he goes over there. That's a long time for them to continually like, what's going on like for three or four miles? But anyway, um, let's just say it this way. Jesus is going to claim to be God all throughout the Gospels. If Jesus can resurrect himself from the dead, that's, that's a pretty big deal. I mean, resurrecting yourself from the dead. God does that. No one else can do that. Even bigger. If Jesus can create everything that exists out of nothing, Genesis 1, then Jesus walking on the water isn't such a big deal. I mean, if he can do the other two, certainly he can walk on water. And this is the absolute only place that the disciples and the writers are wanting us to think. So um, if, you're, if you're struggling with walking on the water, this is God. Jesus is God, and he's walking on the water to them. So when we come back to this, I want to look at verses, starting at verse 45, and there's four things I want you to see about trusting Jesus. Four things I want you to see. First, immediately he made, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the, d- dismissed the crowd. Now, because Jesus is God, he knows without a shadow of a doubt absolutely what he is sending the disciples into. It's not like, oh, I hope this is going to go well. I have no idea the future of what's about to happen. He knows putting them in the, out there, sending them out into a storm means he's sending disciples into a life-threatening situation where there's going to be wind, there's going to be waves, and wind and waves with boats, that usually doesn't go well. And so he knows that he's sending them out into what is a storm. He makes them go out in there. He wants them to be a part of this storm. Now, when we see this, why is Jesus sending them out into a storm? If he's God and God is good, that doesn't seem good to send people out into a life-threatening situation storm. Why would Jesus do that? God's good. If Jesus is God, what's going on here? And I would simply ask this question back. I would ask you this. How do you know that him, Jesus, sending the disciples out into the storm, into difficulty, isn't what is most good? How do we know that? We don't know that. Death is not the ultimate fear. We, we should not be afraid of death. We should more be afraid of the wrath of God. That is the biggest thing in our life. And so Jesus sending his followers to what might be life-threatening situations is not the ultimate scary thing, the ultimate, like, why would he do that? Instead, not telling them about the impending wrath of God after we die is what is the most important thing. So Jesus sends his disciples intentionally out into the storm, out into trouble. He does this because he is wanting to bring about, not just for them, but for us, redemptive purposes. He sends us out, or I should say it this way, in your life. Jesus is orchestrating, not just allowing, orchestrating, not just the good, but the bad to come into our life, the difficulties to come into our life intentionally. Because we would say that doesn't seem good. And I would say, how do you know that's not the most ultimate good of, 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 of circumstances? Romans 8.28, I referenced it in the first service. I want to make sure that I read it. Um, Romans 8.28 says this. <clears throat> if I can flip to it. Back in my Bible drill days, I could go to it faster. Romans 8.28, it says this. And we know, that's believers, and we as believers know that for those who love God and for, the, for those whom God loves, God, um, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. That means the easy circumstances in your life, and we can easily say, I can see how that works for good, but even the difficult, which God orchestrates. Now, I know you're saying, well, this is just a story, and you're grabbing context, and you're saying, hey, Fudd, since he sent the disciples out into the storm, you're saying that he sends the storms on us all. And I'm saying, that's, that's the context. That's not just this. That's, that's the fullness of the scriptures. As you read anything, the Bible is screaming out, God is sovereign in every situation. God is orchestrating every single occurrence. Not a leaf falls off a tree. From all time did God not orchestrate. Therefore, God is 
even in the difficult things, God is bringing those together for good. And let me, let me just make sure I say this. We don't define good. God defines good. We want good as easy, money, safety, security. My children are healthy. I don't have any kind of like ongoing problems. Everything's hunky-dory, birthday cakes and, and, and ease. That's what I want all the time. I want to be able to eat whatever I want and because I'm 40, it not make me gain weight. I, I mean, I want ease and comfort all the time. That's what I see as good. But God, that's not good for him. God defines what's good for us. And therefore, when he sends storms our ways, how do you know that what comes out isn't what's good? In other words, I should say it this way. The good that God is seeking for in your life is your sanctification. Christ-likeness. That's the good he's seeking for in your life. And in order for that to come about, and sometimes for us in our lives, storms have to come, not ease and comfort. The best thing that God can do to make you most Christ-like is for difficulty to come your way, not for your life to be easy. And it does not mean that God doesn't love you. It's the opposite. It means that God loves you, that he sends these things. Because, again, safety isn't our, 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 our greatest fear. Instead, it's the coming wrath of God. So we need to strive for Christ-likeness. So the first thing I want you to see is this, in, in regard to trusting Jesus. The first thing is, Jesus wants you to trust him when he sends storms, difficulties, your way. That goes right back up to the beginning. Jesus doesn't want it just to trust in him for salvation. He wants us to trust him every day as you're walking through life. Jesus brings the storms and Jesus brings the good. And he wants you to trust him every day as you're going through these things. I've got a friend named Josh. I met him back in college. He's got a wife, Kristen. He is a missionary in Nepal. As you know, there was an earthquake, like almost an eight-point Richter scale earthquake. His place that he lives is wrecked. The, the building's gone or at least structurally unsound. And right now, as a missionary, he's living out in a big field with a whole bunch of people that he doesn't know in a tent in the cold with his wife and his two twin kids that are little. What are you doing, God? He's a missionary. If there's anybody that should have kind of ease and comfort and not have to live in the tent in the middle of Nepal with his own children, fearful for what's going to happen, fearful how he's going to get food, it would be him. And I would say, how do you know that that difficulty in his life isn't what's best? We don't know. And the same goes for all of us. The storms or difficulties in your life. You know, life can ebb and flow with mountains and valleys. And when you're in that valley, you think, there's, there's no reason for me to be here. And I'm saying, not only is there reason, God has orchestrated it intentionally for your good for you to become Christ-like, for you to seek after him. I, I, I haven't ever done this. <laughs> uh, maybe I will. But pastors have said, hey, we, we, we do random kind of, you know, send out to the people. We want them to take a, a, a kind of a test for us. Not a test, but more of like an inventory. What's going on in your life spiritually, etc. cetera. Uh, and going to be anonymous and we're going to get it back. And I've heard that when they send these surveys out to, out to their congregations regarding prayer, how often do you pray, etc.? When the pastors get it back, they're usually quite disheartened about the amount of, of time people spend in prayer. And I think that um, the reason why is because when we're in that uh, mountaintop experience, it's, it's pretty nice. But when we get down in the valley, uh, and we don't pray much, when it's down in the valley, that's when we seek Jesus in prayer. And it's because when we're there, that's when we say, now I want to trust you. But I'm saying, Jesus wants you to trust you, not just in the difficulty, but also in the good times. Continually, don't depend on your own strength. Ongoing, always trusting in Him. He wants you to trust Him. If you can trust Him for your salvation, this is the most important thing. Certainly, you can trust Him in everything day to day. Jesus wants you to trust Him when He sends storms your way. Jesus wants you to trust Him. So, Verse 46, and after he had taken leave of them, so he, he sends them in the boat, y'all go ahead and head out. I'm sending you out into the storm, and I know that. Um, but instead of being with you like I was in verse 30 and following on the boat, I'm going to be without you. And it says, he went up on the mountain 
to pray. Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray. Now, we don't know the, the content of this prayer. We do know a couple things. We know that he's refusing kingship at this moment. Hey, you create food. Um, why don't you become king? We know that he's refusing kingship. We know that also he knows on the path to the throne is death on a cross for his people, resurrection. So we know, we know he has this um, extraordinarily difficult set of circumstances in front of him before he gets there. We don't know the content of the prayer, but we do know that Jesus secludes himself because of the coming difficulties that are facing him, and he wants to be face-to-face with the Lord. We know that he knows what's coming, and he needs to be with God. Jesus knew that life was going to be continually difficult, and so he spent many hours in prayer. As you read, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, right before he dies on the cross, there's, there's an entire chapter in John chapter 17 devoted to the high priestly prayer as he struggles with the coming thing. Um, we know that he, he was so worried and so anxious about dying uh, on the cross as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane that he's literally sweating blood. So he, we know that Jesus understood much difficulty was coming his way. He has healings. He has miracles. He has dodging the Pharisees and not dying too early. We know that he's going to die on the cross eventually. And so because of all of this knowledge of ministry and things coming to him, Jesus goes and spends time, secludes himself intentionally to be in hours of prayer. And because of that, Jesus knows that he must pray before facing these difficult monumental tasks. Jesus knows he must pray before everything he does. I think that we need to realize that needs to be the same for us. That has to be the same for us. So a principle in trusting Jesus is that we would see the absolute need for prayer and everything as well. First thing, Jesus wants you to trust him in the difficult circumstances he sends. Second thing, Jesus wants you to trust him in that by praying, by going to him and praying. I talked about, you know, pastors that, that survey their, their congregations, I think the reason why we only pray in difficult circumstances is because when we operate our own strength, we don't see the need for prayer. We don't see the need for prayer. The second thing I want you to see is this. Jesus wants you to trust him. And in this trusting, he wants you to pray. He wants you to pray. John Piper, um, speaking on prayer, has been famously quoted for saying this. You don't realize or know what prayer is for until you know or believe that life is war. You don't know what prayer is for until you believe that life is war. This is so true. Even unbelievers know this. Whenever difficult circumstances happen, what do we all naturally do? Or for no, Jesus, Jesus, come now and save or help me. And we do that in difficult circumstances. But when we realize all of life is war, difficulty and good times, because we're all in a continual battle with the flesh. We're all in a continual battle with reaching our neighbors. We're all in a continual battle with hearts for the lost. You don't know what prayer is for until you believe that life is war. So since all of life is difficult, I know that's difficult to understand here in America because it's so easy for life not to be difficult. But the truth is, as you press into Christ, you'll be, the Lord will reveal to you more and more often just how needful you are of Jesus to trust Him. And you'll be reminded just how needful you are to pray. Whenever I used to work at Charleston Southern University, this was several years ago. <laughs> I worked there in 1998 till 2001. I got married in June. I graduated in May of 98. I got married in June of 98, and I took my first full-time job in also in June of 98 uh, at Charleston Southern University. I was an enrollment counselor, and so I was, I was enroll- this just means I travel around and try to get people that are in high school to come to CSU, and so I was there for three years, and as I was there for three years, um, we didn't have business cards until the very, very end. I was there for three years, and in 2000, May-ish of 2001, I left in June. They said, hey, we're going to get business cards for all the enrollment counselors. And so they designed them up, and they handed me a box of 500 business cards. Now, I used five or something like that because I left the next month. And I was thinking, what am I going to do with 495 business cards? Because I can't throw them in the trash. And if you know me decently, this may be a surprise to some of you. I'm a bit of a prankster. 
And so I decided I know what I'm going to do with these 500 business cards because I don't want them to go to waste. I'm going to hide all 495 all over this entire building um, so that <clears throat> for the next months, maybe even years, they'll keep finding these and they'll be, remem they'll rem they'll be remembering of me. They'll, oh, FUD. Or even if they find it and they don't know FUD, they'll say, who's FUD? I, this office that I worked in, um, it was me and one other guy and about 17 women that worked in this office. They all worked in the financial aid. It was, it was interesting. Um, and so uh, if times get difficult, I would just stand up and I'd be like, Matt, bathroom. And we would go into the bathroom. They couldn't come in there. Like, ha ha, they can't come in. We'd vent for a while about how much they frustrated us and come back out. Uh, and so, you know, here we are. That has nothing to do with my point. So, um, so I, uh, I took these 495 business cards and literally hid them everywhere in the, in the building. I went over to students' files that were applying. I don't know who they are. Just opened up the file, stick it in there, close it up, put it in. I went to plants. I pulled up some dirt and stuck it down in the dirt. And I stuck it in people's computers. I pulled out people's drawers and put them in the drawers. I pulled out people's drawers and put it on the floor behind their drawers in case they ever moved furniture. I lifted up the ceiling tiles and stuck them up there. I stuck them in air conditioning vents if they ever happened to blow out. I mean, literally everywhere. The fridge, the freezer, everywhere. I just found out, as a matter of fact, this, this is what makes the story so great. Um, <laughs> there's a guy that was here first service that works there right now as an enrollment counselor, and he told me, he goes, I was wondering where the tradition started of whenever people leave, they leave business cards. Because I'm about to leave, and I'm going to leave business cards everywhere. He said that in 2009, he found one of my business cards, and I was like, oh, worth it, yes. Eight years later, they found a business card in the building still. So I started tradition unbeknownst to me until this day, and now it just makes the story even greater. Now, Fudd, why are you telling me you did that? Here's why. Because this is what I deeply desired. I had been there three years. I had been there before that. I graduated from there. I met my wife. CSU was very important to me. Um, and so I wanted, after I was gone, I didn't want anybody to forget me. So what I, did, what I did is I literally left little traces of memories all over 495 business cards everywhere in that building. And it's not a huge building. It's maybe the size of this building. Everywhere. Everywhere they walked, there were little traces of me and they thought of me. And this is exactly what I'm talking about when it comes to prayer. As circumstances arise... Every little thing that pops up in your life, just as those business cards arise, oh, I remember FUD. All of the circumstances, both good, God's sprinkling little business cards that just says G-O-D-P-R-A-Y, God pray. These circumstances, they're sprinkled throughout life, and as we come upon them, he wants us to remember, God, pray. That's what difficult times are in your life for. They're sprinkled all through your life, all throughout your building of your life, saying, I'm God, pray. These circumstances and situations spread all throughout your life are all serving as God's little reminders to look to him continually and never forget him. And every day they pop up in your life to remember, oh, the Lord, you're so good. Thank you for these easy times. Or, God, this time is difficult. I need to be in prayer. I need to remember continually to look to you. Jesus knew that difficult times were coming. And what did he do? Sent the disciples on. He wasn't mean-spirited. He's not like, go row for four hours. He, he knows that he needs to pray. He knows that he needs to pray. And he's beckoning you. As you're entering into these difficult times, he's saying, this whole point of difficulty is serving constantly as the reminder to say, I've got to pray. Not just the good times, but the bad ones. Not just the bad times, but the good ones. It says in verse 47, when evening came, the boat was out on sea. So the finally of this day, this long day of, of full-fledged ministry is finally coming to an end. The boat was out on the sea. Jesus was alone on the land. <laughs> it's still funny. Um, and they saw that they, and Jesus saw that they were making headway painfully. So I don't know how long Jesus prayed. He usually prays for a while. It's closing in on 3 to 4, 6 a.m. The sun goes down, who knows what, 8-ish? I don't know, nine-ish, maybe five-ish. I don't know. We don't know. But if it's between three to six, and he sent them out, and it says, and the sun was starting to go down, um, that it was evening, and when evening came, it looks like they were out on the water, and they rode for three to maybe four miles, and it took them five hours? I don't know. That's, that's, that's not good. 
I mean, that's, that's got to be very, very exhausting and frustrating. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And it came to them in the fourth watch of the night. It came to them in the fourth watch of the night. That fourth watch of the night is key. I mean, after it's 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., all of us are like, just forget it. <laughs> I don't care if I drown anyway. Blow me back to the other side. Forget it. I'm done. And we would think, as we're looking at this, what is Jesus doing? He's just leaving them out there. Is he ever going to come help them? Like, why is he taking so long? I think that's the whole point of the fourth watch. And he came walking on the sea. So he came to them doing only something God can do. And it says he meant to pass by them. I'll come back to that. Only in Mark is that written. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out. Now, like four years ago when we were going through Matthew, I, I uh, found out, the, it says they cried out for they were all terrified. I find out exactly like in the Aramaic um, what this cried out and what it sounded like. And I thought I'd make sure I share it with you because we're doing it again later. So as they thought they see a ghost and they cried out and they're terrified, it sounded kind of something like, ah, like that. That's, that's what it sounded, I don't know what it sounded like. I just wanted to make sure if you were sleeping, you're awake. So this is what's going on here. They're freaking out. They're scared, right? It's the fourth watch of the night. They're not making any headway. What's going on? There's, there's two things in verses 47 through 49 regarding trusting Jesus I want you to realize. There's two things I want you to realize. Two things, power and timing. Power and timing. Here's the third one, is this. Jesus wants you to trust his power, and Jesus wants you to trust his timing. Jesus wants you to trust his power, and Jesus wants you to trust his timing. In this difficult circumstance that he has orchestrated, that is in your life, or even the good, as it's happening, he's beckoning you to come pray. He's beckoning you to bring those things at his footstep. He's beckoning you to realize the only hope you have is him, therefore pray. And in that, he's saying, now, you need to realize, since I'm God, I'm tr I want you to trust me, my power, and I want you to trust my timing. Let's take them in reverse order. First, timing. God's sovereign. He orchestrates all things. Jesus began this storm, and Jesus is going to end this storm. And Jesus is going to pick when he begins this storm and ends it. And we may think, as you're going through the valley... Why do I not have relief yet? And it's the fourth watch, and it seems like he must not care. He must not be good. How come it's not happening? And I'm saying Jesus is orchestrating, not just the beginning, but the entirety of this, and he's going to end it at exactly the right time. Jesus' timing is perfect. So the end of the difficulty in your life is just as orchestrated by God as the beginning. So he's saying, as you're praying, and as you're beckoning him, and as you're trusting trust my timing. It's not time yet for this to be over because there's more Christ-likeness for you to seek after. There's more good that the Lord wants to pull you into. And he defines the good. So the first thing, as we see the fourth watch, which is, I mean, it's 3 to 6 a.m. We all want to sleep at that time. I don't know anybody that's out doing anything. If you are, there's nothing good to do at 3 to 6 a.m., right? At least in my mind. I just got big eyes from Jeffrey, so maybe there is. But I don't think there's anything good at 3 to 6 a.m. besides sleep. The only thing that happens in my life at 3 to 6 a.m. is cleaning up throw up. And I, I'm not interested in that. Anyway, back to this. Um, so the timing seems late, but it isn't late. It's right on time. And God is going to, it's just his way. He's going to bring the end in his time. So for those of you right now, listen, going in this, Difficult set of circumstances. Life is just seems to be kicking the trash out of you right now. You're like, when is this going to end? It's going to end when God says, and realize that he's beckoning you to press in and pray and trust him. Not only that, power. He's trusting, he wants you to trust in timing. He wants you to trust his power. Look at this. And he came about them. He came to them walking, I'm in verse, the end of verse 48, walking on the sea. Mark wants you to believe that he's literally walking on the water. Matthew and John, they want you to believe that he's literally walking on the water. This is not an optical illusion. This isn't some parlor trick. This isn't like he's David Spade or whatever his name is, Spain, Spain. I don't remember his name. The guy that like slept in the floor of Manhattan for four weeks or whatever. It's not some trick, right? I, don't, I can't remember his name. Um, he's evil, y'all. Anyway, um, he, he's, maybe he's not. He just freaks me out. Blaine, David Blaine. Anyway, walking on the sea. Jesus is walking on the sea. 
Like he's walking on the sea. That got scary. He's not evil. Walking on the sea. So Jesus is walking on the water for some three miles. This is what God does. Only God has power to do this. You ever tried it? It doesn't, it doesn't work. I've tried it. It doesn't work. Now think of this. There's lots of ways that he could have come to him, right? He decides to walk. He decides to display deity. He could have swam. He could have like, boom, jet ski. Vroom, right? Like, what do you got? That's a jet ski. It's coming out 2,000 years. Like, he did it any, any way he wanted, right? He could have done anything. He walks. Why? Display deity. Only God has this kind of power, right? He's wanting them to see, trust my timing, but trust my power. Look, this, this little phrase, he meant to pass by them. What does that mean? That's pointing to deity. Let me, let me tell you how. Mark only says this. He's meaning to pass by him. One commentator says this ridiculous thing. He says, um, you know, Jesus is God, man. He's deity and humanity. And he says, what? <laughs> so ridiculous. He says, in his humanity, like Jesus was so over in the humanity side that he was just enjoying this new experience of walking on the water. Like, I've never done this before. He's enjoying it so much that he sees him. He's like, I'm just enjoying this so much. I need to keep going. Like, I just want to pass by and look at me. I'm like dancing. Like, I don't think that that's the ridiculous idea that Jesus is just in his humanity. Like, I'm going to pass by you because this is just so enjoyable. I mean, he could have done this anytime. Um, so I think that he meant to pass by them. There's a couple things, and I think both of these things help us understand it. Number one, two chapters ago, uh, in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, Jesus was in the boat and calms the storm. Jesus is in the boat and calms the storm. And so here, he's wanting to see, are you going to trust me? He's going to pass by them. And are you going to quit being terrified and freaking out? Didn't this just happen, Mark 4? Like, no, they don't trust him. They're still freaking out. Because, as it says at the very end, they didn't understand about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. They didn't get the miracle of the loaves. They don't, that, I mean, that can't be Jesus. No one walks on the water. It's got to be a ghost. Ah, you know, they scream. And, but also, Danny Aiken points this other thing out. And I think this is pretty interesting when it says, pass by them. Um, in the Old Testament, in Theophanies, these are appearances of God, Theos God, Ophany is like appearance. So in the, in the Old Testament Theophanies, this pass by, Mark, Danny Aiken says this pass by language in Mark is pointing us to Old Testament stuff. In, in Old Testament, it says in Exodus 33, for example, God tells Moses he can't see his face, but to go stand further away, and he's going to let his glory pass by. So when Theophanies happen, appearances of God happens, this pass by language happens. It says in 1 Kings 19, Elijah's told to go out, stand on the mountain, wait for God's presence to pass by. And so... Danny Aiken says that he's meaning to pass by, and this pass by language that Mark is using is wanting to have, this is a theophany. This is an appearance of God. This is a display of Godness. This is a display of God power. And I don't think that's necessarily too far-fetched of an idea because if you get to verse 50 where it says, take heart out his eye, Jesus is going to call himself God. He's going to call himself God there. So because of that, he's displaying the God power. And so back to point number three is this. Jesus is wanting you to trust his timing. He's going to begin and end difficulties in your life, but he's also wanting you to trust his power. And listen, who better can you trust than God? He doesn't want you to just trust in him for salvation. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to trust his power. So think of it this way. If there ever was something where we talk about God's weakness, which, by the way, is a ridiculous assertion. There is no such thing because he's ultimate power. So, but if there ever was God's weakness, false assertion, but if we ever were, and man's strength, the gap between these two is infinite. Man, the strongest man is infinitely, infinitely distance from the weakness of God. Again, false premise. There's no such thing. So, because of that, who else do you have to trust but God? He has power. Trust his power. Trust his timing Trust his power. Verse 50. That's what he's wanting you to see. So they're freaking out. They're terrified. But immediately what happens? They hear the voice of Jesus and, then, and they're fine. That's going to point us to the last thing. He looks and he says, but immediately he spoke to them and saying, take heart, it is I. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, um, I'm assuming none of us read Greek here. <laughs> so the it is I uh, in English is actually not it is I in Greek. It's literally two words, ego, amy, I am. 
I am. So it would read more appropriately, take heart, I am. Don't be afraid. I am is no throwaway phrase. Exodus 3.14, the very first time God tells anybody, what are we supposed to call you? I am. Call me Yahweh. I am. So here, Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. Take heart. I am Yahweh. God's on the water. Not a ghost. God. Jesus is here. The Lord. The Lord's on the water. If the Lord is present, your circumstances and storms don't have to be so scary. God's here. The Lord's here. Take heart. The Lord, Yahweh, I am. It is I. I am here. Do not be afraid. So as we see that, this is what he wants us to see. The fourth thing is this. Jesus wants to trust him as the I am of your life. The Lord of your life. This is what I mean. I want to draw a little dichotomy, if you will. We always say, you need to trust in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. I want to draw a little dichotomy between Savior and Lord. Because every one of us, I think, if we're believers, it's far easier to trust Jesus as Savior. I've got a sin problem. I can't fix my sin problem. I realize that the only person that can fix my sin problem is Jesus. I'm going to trust in Jesus. I'm going to repent of my sin. I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to ask forgiveness. I'm going to ask him in my life so that I can be saved. So he's my Savior because I now I'm saved. So Jesus, I'm trusting you as my Savior because I have this sin problem that I know no one can fix except for you. You're God. There's no other way that I can be saved and, re- and receive eternal life. So I'm trusting you as Savior. But he's also asking us to trust him as Lord. So Savior is justification. Lord is the rest of your life. He's saying, don't just trust me as Savior. Trust me as the I am. Trust me as the Lord, as the King, which means don't just trust that I can fix your sin problem. Instead, trust me as the one who's going to call all the shots for the rest of your life too. That's why I say, I'm not just asking you to trust in Jesus. I'm asking you to trust Jesus. Don't just trust him as Savior. Trust him as Lord. I think that you can see the difference in that. We can't trust Jesus to die for us and save us and not trust him as Lord also. If he is absolutely trustworthy to save us from our sins and be our Savior, is he not equally and maybe even more so now that he has saved us trustworthy to be the Lord of our life, to call the shots, to be the one where we don't depend on our own strength to get through life, but instead we say, everything in my life, both good and bad, I don't want to trust in my judgment only. I don't want to trust in my, my giftings or whatever. Difficulty or great, I'm going to trust you to be the Lord. You call the shots. You want me to go to the 1040 window? I will. You want me to move to another place? I will. You want me to take that job? I will. You want me to marry that person? I will. You want me to surge my way through the storm? I will. You don't want me to get divorced from that person but stay? I will. You want me to make this right moral decision that honors Jesus? I will. I'm going to trust you that what you say is what I should do. You call the shots, not me. He wants us to be the Lord, not just the Savior. What does that look like? Like, what's a tangible example of what that looks like? Well, it's in this story, but it's not in this book. It's in the book of Matthew. Same story. Book of Matthew, chapter 14. Same story. um, Is walking on the water. However, Matthew includes when Peter walked on the water. Now, you may be asking yourself, smart. If Mark wrote the gospel, because Mark wasn't a disciple, so Mark wasn't with him. How did Mark hear about Jesus? Peter told Mark. Why well, did Peter not tell him about walking on the water? Um, if, if Mark got his gospel from Peter and he leaves that part out, but Peter walks on the water, I mean, maybe it's just Peter being humble. In the end, we don't know. But because um, Peter is quick to point out his deficiencies. <laughs> so Mark's got plenty of deficiencies of Peter. I don't think that he's just like, that's going to make me look bad. Don't put me in there. Um, so if we're asking, what does it mean to trust Jesus, not just as Savior, but as Lord? Here is a microcosm picture of what it means to trust Jesus as Lord. Over in Matthew 14, same story, Peter walking on water. So, take heart in his eye. Okay, we're not freaking out anymore, it's Jesus. Before Jesus gets in the boat, this little story happens where Peter looks out at, at Jesus and he says, Peter said, Lord, if it is you, 
command me to come on the water. I want to walk out there with you. And Jesus looks and says, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. If we just stopped there, we'd be like, that's awesome. Like, we have the rest and we know what happens. But wouldn't it be awesome? Like, I'm walking on the water to Jesus. Here I go. Like, here, I'm all the way to Jesus. Like, there's two people that have walked on the water. Jesus and Peter. But there's the rest of the story. So let me just say, microcosm of trusting Jesus as Lord. Sometimes trusting Jesus as Lord looks like that. Like, we're literally trusting him. We're walking on the water or... We're not doubting, we're having faith, we're believing him, we're trusting him. We're literally walking with him the way we should. But here's the rest, and this is the microcosm. This is also what it means to trust Jesus as Lord. I think this is a picture of how we live our life sometimes. The second half is not how we should live. The first half is, but here's what happens. Jesus is, or Peter's walking on the water, but he saw the wind. That's it. He saw the wind. He saw the storm. He saw the difficulty. He saw the wind. He was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord. In other words, you're walking with Jesus. You're trusting him. You're living as Lord. But all of a sudden, as you're walking, you start sinking. Because instead of looking at Jesus, you look over. Difficult circumstance happens. And all of a sudden, in that moment, you start doubting Jesus. And that right there takes over. And that seems bigger than Jesus. And it freaks you out. And all of a sudden, Jesus isn't Lord anymore because I don't trust him. That scares me. I'm afraid. That scares me more than anything else. And then you start sinking. This is what it means to not, not trust Jesus as Lord. And what does Jesus say? He looks at him. Jesus immediately reached out. Lord, save me. Jesus took out his hand. He's so faithful anyway, right? Even in our doubt, he's so faithful. Lord, save me. What does he do? Ah, too bad. Look at me first, Peter. Get it all together. That's not what he says. Boom, Jesus immediately reaches out his hand, took hold of him. And said, but he still, still points it out. Still points it out. Oh, you of little faith, why'd you doubt? Peter, you were walking on the water. Just bring it up to us. You were living with Jesus as Lord. Why'd you stop? Don't doubt. Don't, take, don't make circumstances bigger than Jesus. Go up to number three. Trust his power. He's way bigger than your difficulty right now. I'm not diminishing your difficulty. I realize it's tough. But I'm saying he's bigger. That's what it looks like. That's what a microcosm of living with Jesus as Lord. Good times and bad. Struggling and doubt. Trusting. Having no faith. Letting our fears overcome us. And in that, we want to live in faith. We want to trust. We want to trust him as our Lord. So as we see this, as we see how Jesus is calling us to trust him, where is it that you are absolutely cognizant of where you need to improve? Maybe you've never even thought of this big picture concept. Christ sends difficulties for my good. <laughs> never thought of that. That's a new concept, and it's kind of blowing you away a little bit. And he's asking you to realize he's much more sovereign and in control of everything. Maybe it's that you need to pray. You don't look to prayer. You don't, in the circumstances, happen like, I need you, Jesus. Instead, I'm going to muscle up. I've got strength. I've got, I've got abilities. I'm going to do this all by myself. And he's saying, no, no, look to me and pray. Maybe in its longevity of difficulty, you're not trusting his timing. You're freaking out and you're running away. You're not trusting his power. You're not trusting that he can do what he says he can do. You're not trusting that the end of it is happening because he's wanting your Christ-likeness. He's wanting your sanctification. You're just wanting it to be over. And he wants to do good first. And maybe it's just that you've trusted Jesus as Savior but not Lord. And you're sinking and you're letting your fears overcome you. Look away to that and look back to Jesus. Whatever it is, you've got time here to think and pray. You've got time here to just bask in the greatness of the Holy Spirit. Bask in the greatness of the overflowing goodness of Christ. They said they didn't understand the loaves. How are these two connected? The whole point of the feeding of 5,000 is 
You can't outgive God. He can just keep sending you more stuff, overflowing with forgiveness, overflowing. Food, 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 food everywhere. That's the gospel. Forgiveness everywhere. You're never going to outsend God's forgiveness. It's just flowing and flowing and flowing to you. But the other story here, Jesus walking on the water, is a beautiful picture of the gospel as well. Here's the picture. Spiritually, we have a terrible storm in all of us. Sin. It wreaks havoc in our lives. So much so, it doesn't just make things bad. It kills us spiritually. We don't just almost drown. We die. It wreaks havoc, this calm. But when Christ comes and gets in our boat, comes in our heart, we confess our sin, we repent of our sin and trust Jesus, and he comes into our life and fills us with the Spirit, when that happens, he brings calmness. Not in circumstances, but in our ultimate problem, which is sin. He brings calmness, and he vanquishes sin in all the storms of sin. Forgiveness that we need cease. And our hearts are finally at rest. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Matthew eleven, thirty-eight, and following. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Our lives are a wreck, and Christ comes and vanquishes it through his forgiveness and calms us, our soul, and we have finally rest. It doesn't mean that your life won't have circumstances that are difficult, but it means that the wrath of God is no longer on us. Instead, all we get is the overflowing grace. <laughs> so beautiful. If you don't hear anything, hear this. Take heart. I am is here. The Lord is here. He's with you. Trust him. Let's pray. God, it's so hard to trust you in everything for all of us. And I just confess my own life, it's so hard. It's difficult to trust that when storms come, that you have good and I can't see the good and I don't understand the good. And I, I want ease. Not how you define good, how I define good. I want comfort, ease, health, longevity, money, security. But that's not how you define good. You define good, Christ-likeness, trust, gospel centrality, loving and trusting only in what Christ has done, his work on the cross. And all things that happen, good or bad, pull me to be like Jesus and trust in Jesus and his finished work on the cross more. To trust that the rest has come, the final rest. God, help me. Help us all to trust you. Not just trust in you for our salvation, but to trust you as Lord. Be with us now as we worship. I pray that anything that we're thinking about that we confess, we let the Spirit do its work. Whether we need to pray or trust you, whatever it is, Lord, that we would pray. And then we would stand and we would sing out and give you all the glory. I pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.